Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today our guest is Thomas Staub, and he is the CEO and Managing Principal of Red Oak Development Group, a real estate development firm based in Austin, Texas, overseeing project underwriting, financial planning, debt and equity strategy, company expansion, and project development. He has over 15 years of business expertise and focuses on project viability, partnerships, and investor relations. Red Oak has funded eight projects and has six active projects with 489 acres and 2,200 lots with a total valuation of $188 million. Tom, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? How's it going? Good. Thank you. So Tom, can you share with us a little bit more about your background, how you got started in real estate, and then what is your current focus now? Yeah. So that must have been notes, yeah, gosh, maybe, maybe a year ago. So we have eight projects now. We're building two master communities in Austin, ones that we're very proud of, total valuation of around $445 million about 6,000 homes that we're bringing to market. So we're we're really involved in the community and all that. So I could go in for hours about that and our passion behind that. But I got started, like everyone, you know, like most people with a W-2, you know, in my head in terms of um, coming out of college and finance, working at Morgan Stanley, which I did not like. Got out of that, went to consulting, which eh, is kind of boring. Went to MBA, went back to corporate finance, tech. So I, you know, I've, I've kind of lived in a lot of different facets that they sell you as the, is the right path to freedom and wealth and yada, yada. And fast forward in 2010, I started my real estate career doing flips myself, doing the actual work. I, I wanted to learn the work. And then in 2014, switched into multifamily. 2015, 16, started borrowing uh, OPM or other people's money, doing syndications. And then in 2018, 17, 18, pivoted to land development in Arizona we just we just exited our third deal last week, and then you know I lived in Austin, so I said, well, why am I in Arizona so much? I should probably get to Austin. And yeah, now we we are we are the biggest developer in South Austin. Oh, awesome! And so I have to ask you though, Tom, you said that you came from you know you went to go get your MBA, you went to corporate finance, you did some other consulting work as well. What drove you to real estate? Like, how, what drove you from that? the corporate life and what you were doing before into looking for different ways to, to get into involved in real estate? Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't any one thing in particular. I, I will tell you, you know, again, working in, in tech, code is great, but it's, it, while it's tangible on a screen, it's not really tangible outside of a screen. So there is some sort of tangibility that I, that I appreciate with, with real estate. But also, you know, now that I talk to family offices, like, you know, billionaires on, on the regular, at least once a month, when I talk to these private client funds and at JP Morgan and, and all that, most people get rich from real estate or a business. You know, they're not grinding a W-2 trying to save away. So it's a proven method of gaining wealth and substantial wealth by the richest families in the world. So I say all that because yes, there was a tangible sort of, I guess, gratification from it. But it's if you're doing the, like not doing what we do, but if you do just flips and multifamily, it's not that complex of a of an asset class. Right now, within reason, if you're buying a gut job where you're tearing down the walls, you have mold issues, you have structural problems, then it can be complex. 
if you know if we're talking about cosmetic rehabs on a home, repairing it and then running it on a platform, it isn't the hardest thing to learn. And so the the learning curve is is rather easy. So for me, it was those elements are kind of what drew me to it. And then you know, aside from that, I think with most entrepreneurs, you you find yourself up. Uh, obsessing and being curious. And I have OCD to the max with curiosity. I, I can't stop reading about reports or some uh, learning something. So with anything, it, it's kind of grew in itself. Why flipping to start off with though? Ah, that's the, you know, that's what I thought was the right, the right method. Right. Um, and it's, it was good. It was good to learn the ins and outs. I now walk through a house and I, I know what to look for in terms of, you know, in terms of craftsmanship. But back then, you know, 2010, it was the coming out of the recession you could find good deals. The sweat equity is a little too much for the returns, frankly. And not not everyone was doing it. I mean, you know, I recall when I started a, a turnkey flipping business where I would do the flips, keep some, sell some, I would have to sell to people this idea of owning rentals. It was like, it was a foreign concept. Like, why would you do that? That's crazy. The headaches, yada, yada. You know, fast forward to 2016, 2017, then, I mean, really, Robert Kiyosaki, when he began to make it kind of a thing, and then Grant Cardone, Everyone realized, oh yeah, this is this is an easy way to make some easy way to make money, right? And then the margins compressed, and that's when we really had to pivot away from what everyone else was doing. So again, not necessarily a reason behind it. Just it's not too hard to buy a house for eighty thousand dollars with you know with hard money, put thirty thousand dollars of rehab into it, sell it for one forty, make a margin of twenty five percent, right? Can you walk us through a little bit more of your transition between, you know, flipping to multifamily and then now what you're doing in the development area? Yeah, real estate's addicting. I think most <laughs> people here would agree with that, right? And it's I like a rabbit hole. The right kind of addiction. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I don't know if it's the right kind of addiction or not. Because there's a lot of, you know, pain and headaches and tears and literal blood from who knows what smash your hammer with a the hammer or salt. I mean, you know, it's kind of it's kind of kind of crazy, but like going from one like like one house to a fourplex is is somewhat reasonable and easy. Going from a fourplex to a twelveplex, there's a hurdle there, right? Going from twelve to thirty, not a big difference. Going from thirty to like a hundred's a different ball game. But you know, thirty units and below, again, that that journey and learning curve is not too sub- substantial, especially if if you're getting a, a great price. So I think I, for me, the the biggest gap in journey was that to land development. And land development is, you know, at the end of the day, it's essentially capital arbitrage, right? It's really Wall Street stuff and what we call like like the capital stack, understanding every piece of the pie. It's that is a whole different ballgame. And that has been a massive learning curve for sure. When at what point in when you got into real estate, did you decide to make that transition out from the corporate world and what you're doing into the full-time real estate? Yeah, so my scenario was different, and I don't, I wouldn't recommend what I did. So what I did is I basically built enough passive income to, well, initially my my goal was to make what I made in my W two. Problem is, if you're always being promoted every eighteen months, it's you're outpacing yourself. So like you never actually quit. So like, well, you know, I make a fifteen percent increase every eighteen months. You know, that's that's hard to replicate in the passive income. So at some point, you have to just take a jump. So I. I probably lasted like four to six years longer than I should have. I went I went to a whole different tech company to work and I, I should all the while I had like companies and I had like you know hard money businesses and turnkeys and I was doing podcasts. I mean it was, it was crazy. <laughs> you know, and so I worked you know, I worked probably thirty hours, thirty to forty hours a week in my tech job and I, I you know, I was a I was an executive and I was doing that 
I quit when I realized that I wasn't giving the company, the tech company, my all, right? And I think it's probably very tempting to be like, well, you know, I can milk it here, work 20 hours a week, make a really good salary, like, you know, as much as a doctor, but then also do the real, this real estate stuff. But I think you have to reflect upon yourself. If you're not giving your job your all, and, and they, as a business owner, was, who were also once an entrepreneur, are paying for that investment, and you're not giving them the returns, I believe it's only in your right duty to give up and put, have them give that money to someone else that will, right? And so that was my calling to say, you know what? This is not cool for them. Like, I'm not, I'm not doing my KPIs. I was managing like 15 people. I was like, you know, it's, it's, it was kind of a, my, my like integrity that kind of drove me away from it. But honestly, I probably could have kept doing it for another five years. So. And then, so when you made that transition though, and you became like the entrepreneur, I mean, it, it wasn't some type of overnight type of thing. You had planned it way in advance. And then at the time that happened, the time that you made that decision, you already had the things lined up to make that transition much smoother. When you actually got into it full time, what drastically changed in your business or what did you need to do in order to really scale up to where you are now? Yeah, it's a good question. So some people are meant to be entrepreneurs and some are not. And you can learn for sure, but some people are better not doing that and working the nine to five. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. You know, if, if you, there is something wrong with working your entire life, if you don't believe in what like have a passion and purpose, that is bad. But being entrepreneur is about people and being, again, having OCD and systems, right? So there's something that so, someone once told me, people process systems. That's, that's essentially what an entrepreneur manages every single day and then capital and everything else. But people is a really important part. I'll, I'll tell you the most gratifying thing I, I experience almost weekly is like seeing someone at my company. You know, I have, I have 22 employees. We'll have 40 next year. We'll go up to 100 and by 2025, 20, 26. When someone's inspired, like there's nothing better than that. And that's a qualitative thing. That, that, that's not quantitative, right? Money will, that whole goal of money goes away at some point. And it becomes about people. People in, when you're networking, when you're negotiating deals, when you're raising capital, when you're selling your vision, when you're hiring people and the best talent, all of that is people stuff. And so not that you can't be an entrepreneur and not do that. I mean, Elon arguably is a pretty weird guy, but you know he's arguably the most productive person in the entire world and a phenomenal entrepreneur. So you don't have to have that, but that was a big shift is that I realized that it was less about helping the, someone else's company drive to their end goal versus like really, really being a servant leader and t- taking care of my people. And then on top of that, after all that, freaking out about KPIs and process, right? Like every quarter we have, we're, we're diligent on our KPIs. And then I have a, I have someone I hired out of the Air Force who runs all of our process, like Six Sigma across our company. So if I didn't have that, like there's, there's no way to scale my, my size with like two people. It would, I would go crazy, you know, and I've done all the jobs in between, but yeah, I, I definitely decided to invest in people to be able to scale up. When you first decided to make that transition from like multifamily into land developing, what did it take for you to get into that that different asset class to be able to build up, you know, into this new area? Is you know, I, whether it be single family to multifamily, multifamily to land development, even like note investing, I would I, honestly, I'd probably stay away from like REITs and funds, knowing that business. Like, not that it's bad, but you really need to know know the operator who's taking your money. Um, but anytime you shift to something substantial, the first shift, make sure you're buying the best possible cost basis that, that there is, right? So for example, we bought a piece of dirt out of Arizona from a divorce sale for $80,000, 80 acres. It was probably worth 
700,000 bucks. Now the guy, they want his wife to get it. So we're like, okay, well, we'll take it and then we'll do a back end profit share. Right. So we, whatever. But at that cost basis, we, we couldn't fail and we did fail, but we made money still. Right. And that's the same with the, with the multifamily. If you're going to do this, you know, buy a 16 unit building and you're used to doing flips, you better get something that's dirt cheap and that has a lot of promise. Doesn't have like foundation issues. You know, there's not black mold through every unit. You know, there's not cockroaches through the entire house. You know, like they're find a safe deal that has, you know, the, the biggest margin because you're going to make mistakes. So um, that that's probably the best advice I can give in terms of switching to an, a whole other segment of real estate. And there's nothing wrong with mastering your craft, right? I mean, like note investing, super boring, right? You're making 10 to 14% annually. But geez, how passive can you get? It's amazing, you know, and that scaling is easy, right? I do lot deals, like where I buy 40 acres, I subdivide them into one to two acres, no improvements, and I sell them as, as notes for 12%. Those, are, to me, are the sexiest asset I've ever come across. They're hard to find. I have zero headaches, zero, because there's no building, there's no taxes, there's no maintenance. It's just a mortgage. If they pay, great. If they don't, foreclosure and resell it um, at 80 cents of the dollar. So yeah, I don't know. And by the way, if I could own like sewer plants and water towers, super also passive. I I, I love those assets. So uh, you know, I don't know. I I find like a lot of people in the in Silicon Valley in New York, uh, where I've spent a lot of my life, they're always chasing the hottest, newest, you know, home run opportunity, and that's not what's going to make you money. It's it's going to be the things that are that you can repeat, scale up, and just and if you decide to shift to a new thing, great. But understanding that you have to relearn all that again and become a master again to really maximize your return. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. So when you're evaluating, you know, where you want to shift next or what you want to invest into next, what are the things or what are the different attributes that you look for that makes it so appealing for you? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. My first interaction with the billionaire, I won't say his name, but he told me something. He said, you know, you're on a good path, but right now you're too money focused. And he said, at some point when you have money, it's going to be not about return on investment, but return on headaches. I was like, yeah, obviously. But now that, like, you know, not not to brag, whatever, but, you know, now that money's been in my life more than I need, it's totally that. It's like, well, do I really, like, even, you know, this, this weekend, my buddy's like, hey, Tom, this, this hotel's going in across the street from this, 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 like, broken down, like, commercial shop. Do you want to buy it and do, like, a bagel shop? And I was like, yeah, that sounds fun, but do I want to, do I want to have a restaurant now? No, I don't want to do that. Like, that's too much headache. My buddy is in the Dominican Republic. He's got 200 acres in a, in, a, in a coffee farm. He wants to build a resort and like a wellness center. Sounds great. That's amazing. But then I'm like, well, geez, like the headaches of that, right? And so I start to think about my headaches and how much time I'm going to lose by doing that. And, you know, we're actually shifting now because money's kind of in a good spot and we have 
really good good projects under our belt. We're actually doing more nonprofit stuff. So my engineer, so I, I also own a um, engineering firm, civil engineering, and so we're going to do some nonprofit, what we're calling water resource reallocation in Pakistan. And so that's what I, I care about most right now. Uh, obviously, the projects, the worry investors, but also the, the stuff that's not mo- all you know about money. So. Do you think that it really depends on at what stage you are in your building up your wealth stage where you can focus more on the return on investment and the money side of things versus the return on headaches that you were mentioning earlier? That's a great question. So I'll be very transparent. And well, one, it depends. It, you know, it depends on what you need to live. But you know, it's not cheap anymore. If I, I find to like live a decent life, have the freedoms and travel, and if you want your kids to go to a good school and you want to enjoy a dinner out once in a while, you probably have to make, you have to you know net after savings somewhere in the seven to ten thousand dollars a month range, like at least, right? And if you really want to be free, it's probably something like twenty to thirty thousand dollars a month, and that's like that's a good life, right? But on top of that, you can't spend it all. So I think, you know, I do think there's something that happens around that eight to ten million dollar in net worth. So that's when you can begin to, you know, I mean, just to do the easy math, right? If if you put forty percent of that in rather safe investments, earning four to six percent, whatever, and you take, let's just say, four million of that, and you put it into hard money notes at twelve percent, you're making a half million dollars a year. That's enough to pay for what I just talked about. But if something happens, let's say you get in a lawsuit, lawsuits happen. Let's say your family gets in a situation where you have to pay for a unique therapy or heart surgery or whatever it is, that can take a pretty big hit from your bucket of funds, right? And then you're back to a situation where like, oops, now I have to kind of do some more moves and make some more money. So I think 10, 10 million is kind of the threshold at which freedom is, is really abundant. But if you want to afford life's trauma, life's tribulations, do what you want like to, to an extreme, I do think that 15 to $20 million net worth is, is kind of it. And that sounds like a lot of money, but if you're diligent, especially if you're starting in your 20s, I met a guy recently on um, an investor conference in Cabo who's 28 years old. He already has two ground up development projects, super focused. His partner is like 26. She's super focused, like dynamite power couple, right? These people, they're not like, and they're they're not like big partiers. They've been focused their whole life. These two are going to be that within like 20 years, 100%, right? And so 20 million is something about money. It is. But you know, even to, even ten million. But making the right investments, being consistent, be, hanging out with the right people, uh, it's it'll happen. So, but anyway, that that's the number that I think is really like the cutoff. It sounds so elitist, but <laughs> I, you know. So then, when you know, not everybody is able to get to that level, or they're not at that level at this point. They're working their way up to there. What would be at least for you if you were to? meet somebody on the screen, they're like, how do I get to the $8, $10 million net worth range? What is like that one thing that I need to do first, or I can at least do first to, you know, yeah. get the ball rolling? Yeah. It's, you know, I know it's, it's a lot of money. Um, I'm kind of fancy. So I, I have a wine collecting habit. So I got to fund that. So, you know, I think we're taught to invest in stocks. And again, I talked to your, your, your advisor, but what I had told people is that your twenties, even thirties, you should be investing in income-producing assets, right? And living, you know, they say that most millionaires save 20% of their income. I think you should be saving 40%. And that 40%, most of it should be recycled into income-producing assets. And you, can, and that that flywheel is, and that's how I started. I penny-pinched to an, to an extent, and I just continually invested in income-producing assets. You can also go out there and network. Now, I, in my 20s, I hated networking. I was like, I don't want to do that. I got to like 31, I was like, I guess, you know, I guess I have to. 
I guess I have to go, uh, go, go on and network. And what I accumulated was about $8 million of people's money that I gave a return of 12% on. And I, and I was able to take that through you know, two, three years of constant conferences, recruiting money, and leveraging other people's money to facilitate my returns. And so I did that while having a W-2. You're going to work 20 hours, maybe not 20 hours, maybe it's 10 hours a weekend. You're going to work Monday through Friday, but that's how it's going to work is the first part, what I call the wealth flywheel, you know, income producing assets, and then go out there and use people's money for projects that you know how to succeed in. So what changed in your thinking or the way you approached networking from your 20s into your 30s when things started to really get moving? Yeah. Uh, well, in my, in my 20s, I didn't network at all. I just, I was a hermit. I like to be on my chair on Sunday morning. I, I used to love reading The Economist at 8 a.m. On, on, a, on a Sunday, having my coffee. I had this like super cheap Ikea recliner. And back then, I, I lived in California and I had this like, beautiful garden out back. And so I would sit back for three hours and just read. I loved it. I had to get out more often. And so I started going to conferences. I started like actually getting out there, talking to people who had already done it. And I don't know how it's going to sound, but I'm going to say it. So surround yourself with people who are successful. And I don't mean like they're a doctor, nothing against doctors, or like they're like a lawyer, but that, that is successful, uh, right, in terms of accolades. But people who own businesses, successful businesses that net $10, $5, $10 million a year, entrepreneurs or like real estate investors who have 60 to 100 units, real estate investors who have done some sort of unique, maybe commercial build or some sort of medical office development. If you put yourself in those environments, you're going to learn a ton. You're going to network, network with the right people. And even if you're their sweat equity, partner with them if they have the money and take 20, 30% of the, of the sweat equity, right? Oh, I'm sorry, of the equity in the deal. You know, I mean, like, for example, I now have partners that come into my deals that raise all my equity for me. I give them 25% of my, my returns, right? It's still not their equity, but they go out and raise the equity. They come to the deals and they make really good money. And so if you network, again, I feel like I'm being like a, like a teacher right now, but if, if, if you're being out there and networking with the right groups of people, it's hard not to find success unless you're really just blind to it. And so Tom, how has real estate investing impacted your life so far then? Oh, geez. <laughs> I mean, mostly good, right? I'm, I'm pretty positive, but you know, it's stressful. I gotta be honest. I've, I handle like, it's funny. I, I handle small stresses like calling AT&T, like worse than anyone. And then I, and I handle high stress situations really well. Right. And you need, you need to do that in, in my industry. So, you know, I've, I've had some, some tough times with my multi-unit syndications. I had one in Cleveland. That was so hard. We fired 80 people in a year and a half, 80, because the subs are just not great in Cleveland. So that was my first ever nervous breakdown. And I just like paralyzed from all the activity and stress. So that, that, that was a bad sign. Obviously, like there's something so great about building a company and, you know, being out in the dirt. And, you know, I, mean, I, I just got back before this call talking to farmers about their passion of their land and they're selling us 800 acres and like what it means to them. And then being able to take what they're saying and say, well, why don't we keep that in the community? And like, and then we're, we're doing a lot of cool stuff within our communities, like teacher housing. We're giving teachers housing at cost. Those things are moving, right? And, uh, so real estate's benefited me in a way that I, I, I would have never f- foreseen, which is essentially being this like indirect like philanthropist, right? And so that's, again, the money is obviously one thing, but I think being able to get back to the community has been by far and large, like the, the best benefit from real estate. And if there's one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started, what would that be? Really good question. 
I, you know, going back to networking, I think you got to get out there. And I know it's cliche, but geez, it is so powerful. It really is. And what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing? Hmm. wonder if that question applies to anyone uh, in most industries. We'll see in investing. Well, it depends, right? Well, what, what you're trying to accomplish. I think, again, if, if you're going big scale like us, like, you know, I mean, then it's definitely like obsession of your, your work and craft. But if you're, you know, I don't want to do these massive communities. I just want to make $15,000 a month and call it a day. Totally cool. Then definitely systems, systems and process. And just, you can hire a VA for like $10 an hour to do a lot of the day-to-day, right? And so if you have 20 properties and some notes and you make that $10,000 to $20,000 a month in passive income, which is fantastic. That, that's an awesome accomplishment. You can still outsource a lot of that to a VA and lower your, lower your headache. So if you're not going to go big, which is a whole different thing, then you know process and systems. Awesome. Tom, where can our listeners find out more about you and what you're doing? Yeah. So my company is called Red Oak Development Group. The website's redoakvc, like victorcharlie.com. And my email is at tom at redoakvc.com. Awesome. Tom, thank you so much for all of your time today. I appreciate you. Yeah, sure thing. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Zayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.